Welcome back. It's Katie and Easy. It, easy. <laughs> um, easy. 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 <laughs> it's uh, it's Katie and Izzy. We're back for another episode. Uh, sorry, it's been a minute. We're a little late. We know. Uh, Life is um hectic right now. I have a new foster dog living with me, so if you hear extra animal noises, that's him. <laughs> That's has got daddy. all her animals. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Haunting in Connecticut it is our movie that we are doing because it was a listener request. <laughs> I can't remember her Instagram name, but it is requested by someone first name Ashley. So, all the Ashes in the world, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> she technically <gasps> requested both a Haunting Connecticut 1 and 2. But we didn't want to smash them both into one because they're kind of like the conjuring. So we didn't want to rush it or make it super long. So we are just doing the Haunting in Connecticut one and we'll hit number two another. They are loosely based on a, a, a an investigation by Ed and Lorraine Warren. So that's why we bring up the conjuring and things like that, which is also a throwback to a later ep or earlier episode. Yeah. And, Done before this. <laughs> uh Haunting in Connecticut game came out in 2009. I watched it on HBO. Yep. Um, I don't think it's streaming anywhere else unless you like I... have a premium subscription via HBO. So this movie, however, is not nearly as good as The Conjuring, in my opinion. And oh, it also came out way before like James Wan could take over. <laughs> yes, that's true. And it's also like the investigation itself. There's not nearly as much information on it that happened in real world as much as there is for The Conjuring. But Lorraine has said in interviews that after this movie, because uh, people are like, oh, how did you like it? You know, did you think it was true? Uh, true to your case. And she said in an interview, and I quote, it's a case that was much, much scarier than any movie could ever be. Lorraine said, she also said, that in typical Hollywood fashion, the movie is about as far-fetched from the actual case as it could be. The movie is very, very loosely based on the actual investigations, she said. Hmm. So we'll, we'll get into more of that stuff later. But it sounds like they didn't include pretty much anyone on the actual project themselves. And that this movie... If you can imagine, I'm sure that unless you're like Jeffrey Dahmer, don't have... Not Dahmer... Uh, Wait, is it Dahmer who is burying boys under his floorboards? No, Dahmer's no, the one who John ate Wayne everybody. Gacy. There you go. Gacy. Unless you're Gacy. Now, I know my serial killers, man. Just just tell me which one you're, th you're thinking about. <laughs> they all start to run together. They're like angry oh, white men. I can, I can tell you a know. lot. But um, there's not bodies stuffed all over the walls. Right. <laughs> so right. you can tell that lots of it is probably embellished yes so like you said this was pre james wan and it yeah. was directed by peter cornwell yeah. he has 12 wins for his directing debut which is a short called ward thirteen that 13 which yeah. came out in 2003 uh -huh. it's what is it on? It was on something. I, it's one of those random movies that I found and I just think, decided to watch for fun. I think you can also probably YouTube it. Um, 
basically he made a stop motion film and then sent it to a bunch of uh, I totally lied. I was thinking of something else that is not the movie that I thought it was. What is the, what the fuck is it called? Um, film festivals. Oh my gosh, my brain is fried. Okay. Like Sundance? Yeah, so he sent it to a bunch of film festivals and they loved it. So then it. somebody was like, listen, we have a movie called Haunting in Connecticut. Do you want to do that one? And he's like, sure. So this is not only his first full-length feature film, but it's also his first like working with real people film. Uh, so he, he talked about how different that was in some interviews because he's like in the stop motion you can only do like four seconds of filming a day right because you have to spend so much time with your characters which mm-hmm. so he's like it was nice being able to do as much as we did in a day um but yeah so that was him i didn't really see any other movies where i was like oh yeah that he had done Okay, so it is not the Adam Simon that I am thinking of anyway. Who's the Adam Simon that you thought it was? The Adam Simon I'm thinking of uh, has done, um, he, his name's Adam G. Simon. He uh, is known for being a part of like Point Blank or Man Down with uh, Shia LaBeouf. That's his name. (laughs) But he's been, he's been an actor in a couple of stuff. He just dabbles really here and there in like everything um but he was a really nice guy i hung out with him like all comic-con he got me into comic-con for free because he remembered me from the year before uh so that was kind of cool but the reason we're talking about adam simon is because there is an adam simon out there that wrote (laughs) this uh script he uh, it's written by adam simon who has an acting credit in the 1991 film the unborn uh who he plays uh the priest of course (laughs) of course he plays the priest there's always a priest. Yeah. And then also Tim Metcalf. Met- Metcalf. Metcalf. I never know how to pronounce these names. I always feel so dumb. I mean, if they would just have easy to spell names. Just just normal names. Um, I don't know anything else he's really been a part of besides this movie. Um, nothing. He started in 1984, but and he's currently working or just finished up on Mashup at the Movies, um, where he wrote a character. But other than that, he really hasn't done too much since then. <laughs> so, good job, guys. Thanks for writing this movie. Yeah, good job. <laughs> when I was younger, when it first came out, I really, really, really liked this movie. I thought it was cool. Um, but that's also because I had a really big crush on the main character, who we'll get to in a moment. And then we'll go in details later, but I do want to mention that I think the movie is more loosely based on the book that came out than it is the actual events. And let me find it. Uh, there was a book written by Ray Garton, who is a horror novelist, and he was hired by Ed and Lorraine to cover the case. Uh, and the book is called... Oh my gosh, did I just not put the name in the book? Oh, um, it's called In a Dark Place, The Story of a True Haunting, which came out in 1992. Uh, he also admits to embellishing the true facts, so I think that's why... They took this and like embellished more. <laughs> They're like, oh, this one's a little bit scarier. Let's just add on to that. Exactly. Okay. 
Well, that makes sense. So, the opening credits is kind of very, it's very interesting. Um, it Their photo, their death photos with like embalming flashes. So it's old school Victorian style. And there were actually some like people that would pose with their dead family or something like that every once in a while. But uh, this kind of photography stuff was introduced in 1930 uh, or 1839. I'm sorry. It was often the first time families thought of having a photographer, like a photograph taken. And it was the last chance to have a permanent likeness of that beloved child or person uh, from the or family member, I guess. So in 1839, basically, people were having a shit ton of kids, but only like one or two of them were living past the age of five. Right. And so, because like there was a shit ton of diseases, it was mostly big in Europe, kind of big in America, uh, but here we just kind of thought it was morbid and weird. But in Europe, they would like take pictures of their kids that died and then you know hang them up because they're like, oh look at our babies. Also, random fact: eighteen thirty nine, the living expectancy was forty years for a man and forty two for a female woman, whatever you want to say. So Damn. people were not living long. No. <laughs> Probably having babies early too then. Yes. Ooh. Yes, Ooh. which is why they were pumping out a lot of them too. And uh, not many people were living long. So hence yeah. the photos. Well, in these kind of photographs, they're long exposures when getting taken. So it meant that the dead were often seen more sharp, like more sharp, sharply than the slightly blurred living because they can't hold still as long obviously they're breathing uh but that made it a lot easier for the dead to be photographed which is getting a child as izzy would know to sit still for what five minutes maybe <laughs> 30 <laughs> it's not seconds easy. yeah it's not easy but also it makes them kind of creepy because you have like one person that's super uh, it looks like they're like they're clear. fuzzy yeah and then everybody else is kind of blurred yeah I mean, I guess that's um, no different than taking, like, a portrait and blurring out. Never mind. I got you. Yeah. Well, eh, I get it, though. But On at least some occasions. Oh. Now you know, if you see a picture, you can pick out which one's the dead person. That That's yeah. the moral of the story. The very crisp, the very crisp, clean looking <laughs> lurking person. That's that person was deceased before this photo was taken. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, on some occasions, they would, like, paint the eyes onto the photograph after it's developed onto the person that's dead, which was meant to basically make the deceased more lifelike. I'm sure it was frighteningly looking. <laughs> well, and they, like you said, they would pose them. So there are pictures of, like, women sitting up and their kids, yeah, all like, sitting up. Yeah, kids are, like, laying across their lap and lined up next to them standing and the mom's eyes are open, so it just looks like a beautiful family portrait, but really that mother is dead, and they, like, wired, they stuck wires all up her to, like, make her hold still. Uh, that's so creepy. Uh, I, 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 like, I understand it as, like, an old school thing. Mmm, I'm, I would not do that. That creeps me out. I don't, I, this is why I could never be a person that deals with, that, like, a mortician. Mm -mm, I can't, I, I can't. I wouldn't want one of my family members, but if I go to, like, a flea market and I find some, like, death photos, I sure you're shit gonna, would hang those at my you're house. You're gonna bring a haunting into your fucking house. That's what you're gonna do. You're gonna be, you're gonna be a case that we discuss because <laughs> I just think, you're haunted. I think it would be so cool. Plus, like, Victorian era pictures are so cool looking. Oh, they're looking, so gorgeous. They're right? so pretty. It's different. 
Yeah, I should. Oh, yeah. I would certainly hang those in my house. Yeah. So the movie kicks off. It's uh, June 19th, 1987. Mom is Sarah Campbell, who is driving with her son, Matt, who is sick. And you don't exactly know what he has right then, but you can only use your imagination. Sarah is played by Virginia Madison. Sarah is also, or Sarah, Virginia is also known uh, for being a part of Witches of East End, the number 23 with Jim Carrey, uh, the 1999 film The Haunting with Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta-Jones. I love that movie so much. She's also in the 1992 Candyman, and her voice is the newest one. It's in oh, the oh, newest Oh, her voice one. is in the newest one. That does, yeah. yes, it is. I did go see it. It's a, I love the original Candyman, and the new one is great. I uh, haven't seen them. Oh, well, I don't even know the lore of Candyman. I'm so really oh dead. okay, we'll do that. I know him um, from the game Candyland, and he was creepy as fuck. And they don't put him on the new ones. No, that's the Licorice Man. I don't know. I yeah, call him Candyman, <laughs> but he looks like a Licorice guy. <laughs> Listen, does he have a hook on his hands? He has a cane, like he carries a candy oh. cane in his hand. So. Oh, so maybe he is loosely based on the Candyman because the Candyman has a hook for a hand. Yeah, he's not on the newer versions. They took him off. Apparently, he was too traumatic for children. Go figure. We went through that. <laughs> no wonder we like these movies. Um, but yeah, so she's in that. She's also in the original Dune. Uh, she's done a lot of stuff. She's a pretty great actress. I enjoy her. I don't know about you. Matt is her son, and he is being being treated for cancer. His mom has to drive hours in order to get him to treatment to the right hospital. So uh, that's been a hassle. Matt is played by Kyle Gallner. I have the biggest crush on this kid. <laughs> totally will admit it. I have since this movie. And then he popped up in a Nightmare on Elm Street remake. And I have just loved him. But yeah, so he's been in movies like Veronica Mars, the TV series. Uh, he was in Jennifer's Body as a very goth boy. And I still had a crush on him. I can see that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 2010 uh, remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. He's also in the newest Scream, which I still haven't seen and I need to. He's the star of the 22 Mother May I movie. Yeah. It... I, I don't. I haven't seen that. Well, that's because it's not out yet. That's why it says star of 22. Oh, 22. Got it. Go. That makes sense. Uh, the plot line for that, because I, I was like, is this like just the title? I was like, Is this... a horror movie? Yeah, I was like, this has to be a horror film, right? Um, yeah. It says when Anya, which I think is supposed to be his character's girlfriend, starts behaving like his being this guy, recently deceased mother, Emmett must confront his deepest traumas to free his fiance from this bewildering possession. Uh, but he's in another movie that's coming out sometime uh, called Something's Wrong with Rose, and it follows a doctor whose mind begins to turn on her after she witnesses a traumatic event which involves a patient. So Sarah, the mom, is looking for a rental house that's closer to the hospital, which needs to be big enough for her, Matt, <laughs> a big family. There's there's a younger brother, two nieces, and a dad. Uh, the dad. The dad plans to stay at the regular home and keep working so they can f afford to eat and everything because they're lacking on money. Medical bills are high. I can't even imagine what it would be like for that. They find a, they find a house that is near St. Michael's Hospital in Goatswood, Connecticut. <laughs> on june 27th 1987 she happens upon a house that needs a little tlc it's kind of fallen apart uh, but it's affordable and the property manager says it has a bit of history but it doesn't say they don't say anything else about that 
uh, and they, uh, the mom knows that she probably shouldn't, like, there, there's probably a history somewhere that she should know about with this house, but she chooses not to ask or pry, and she rents it anyway. No, he tells her what it is. She just doesn't care. I would care. <laughs> I uh, would, too. But real yeah. quick. Goatswood, mm. Connecticut is not a real place. Uh, it was made up for this movie. I don't know why they felt they needed to like make up a city. Maybe it was just to like protect the owners of the real, the real house. But yeah, yeah. Um, they used a real house for shooting, but it was located in Manitoba, Canada. It's kind of far from uh, Connecticut. <laughs> A the little first bit. night, oh, yeah, just, just a, a little, little bit. bit, just a little bit. The first night, it's just the mom, or it's just Sarah and Matt that are at the house, and the hauntings basically start immediately. Uh, you notice there is a ghost in, like a ghost shadow that appears in the TV when Matt goes to turn it off, uh, and then you turn around, he's, it's not there, of course. Uh, in the middle of the night, Matt also wanders to the basement to see and sees like a mirror which presents a demon thing and gasps it's just a dream or was it we don't know it scares him and <laughs> i'd be so good at this we don't know that was great your Thanks. gasp was a little off but i'll take the rest of it <laughs> it's cool i'll work on it it's fine <laughs> so day one happens the next day while cleaning around the mom finds death photo albums underneath a window seal like a window seat I, I in my future home I want a window seat so bad. <laughs> Can I just say that? It it's a yeah. cool room. Um it is. It's like got the three windows right there and then the window seat goes across them and then it's cool that it has storage. Yeah, it's nice. And she just like opens them and is like, Oh. Okay. Tosses Whatever. them. Yeah, she throws them out. Uh but yeah, I, I that window seat man there's a couple of things in this house where i'm like oh that's kind of cool uh but matt gets the first pick of his bedroom obviously he's the first one there and he's kind of the loved child of being sick right now the other kids have not arrived yet so he picks the basement which he finds a locked door which has like glass like a glass pane so it looks like you at one point you could have been able to see through it but he can't uh it's not locked but they can't open it at the moment <laughs> Yeah, Basically. like, yeah, it, it appears to just, like, be jammed or something. Yeah, his mom was like, are you sure you want to be down here? And he's like, it has his own bathroom. People don't want to hear me puking. It's fine. That's because she fucking knew, and she just chose to not care. Yeah, she knew exactly what that room was. Anyways. There's also this scene later that has nothing to do with this, but I felt the need to bring it up. He Okay. He's laying, the floor is tile. And there's a drain in the middle of it, right? So it looks like a serial killer's dream. And mm -hmm. he's just laying on this hard-ass tile floor doing sit-ups. And I was like, who in their right mind does sit-ups on a tile floor? He doesn't put like anything... Back in the day when you had to do that on the gym floor? Ugh. He doesn't put anything under his back or his butt. Like, weirdo. Most unbelievable You're part of this movie is that he did that. <laughs> You're already sick, and now you're just making this harder and more painful on yourself. <laughs> Come on, bro. Uh, after he picks his room and kind of, I don't know, they they continue cleaning. The rest end up showing up, uh, the, the two nieces, his little brother, and his dad. And uh, 
um the oldest niece i think she's supposed to be what 16 or 17 something like that uh she is played by amanda crew and uh, she plays wendy she's known for final destination 3 a lot of teenage rom-coms uh she's in surprise me like she's all that john tucker must die all those kind of things uh-huh and she's also in a movie that's coming out this year called There's Something Wrong with the Children. And it's uh, about... Is this, a... is this based off a comic book? I have no idea. Look it up. There's a, it. There's a comic book. Oh, yeah, God. look it up and I'll tell them what it's about. <laughs> uh, it's about a family it takes a weekend trip with longtime friends and their two young children. But they suspect something supernatural when the kids behave strangely after disappearing into the woods overnight. Insert Katie. Dun, dun, dun. I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. And while she's looking okay. for that... Oh, go ahead. Did you find it? No, it doesn't... It doesn't say. Hang on. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing my normal digging. The dad is Peter Campbell, played by Martin Donovan. Uh, he's in a lot of stuff, but the only stuff that we really care about, uh, he's in Silent Hill Revelation. The youngest niece is Mary, played by Sophie Knight. She really hasn't been in much after that. Youngest brother is Billy Campbell. He's played by Ty Wood. He's in Lazarus Project, a TV miniseries coming out this year called Devil in Ohio, starring Emily Deschanel. So that's probably going to be a big deal. And it follows a hospital psychiatrist who shelters a mysterious cult escapee. Her world is turned upside down as the strange girl's arrival threatens to tear her own family apart. So that could be interesting. There's a lot of, like, dark stuff coming out this year. I guess people have just accepted that's our life now and they're putting it out. You know, with how the last few years have gone, it doesn't surprise me. Um, during day one... They start having the haunting encounters, and these are the ones that I noted. Uh, there's a figure in Wendy's closet door mirror. Uh, the mom is mopping the basement floor in Matt's room, and Matt starts seeing blood instead of water where she's mopping. Mm -hmm. And then he's in the kitchen, and stuff is like moving around, but he's the only one who sees it. And so far, he's the only one who's noticed anything. In his head, he thinks it's just the meds that he's on. Yeah, one of the side effects to this, like, treatment that he's on is potential hallucinations and things. And he doesn't want to tell mm -hmm. anyone because if he tells them, they'll take him off this trial. So he's keeping it on the hush-hush. Yeah. All right, give up digging and keep going. Yeah, I did. I I don't think they're related, but there is another there is a comic book called Something Wrong with the Children. Uh so, night 2, Matt starts sleepwalking and he sees a man and a young boy inside of the glass room, like in his bedroom basically. <laughs> the man is carving into the skin of a dead body and says to bind the spirits, then he proceeds uh to cut off the eyelids. Oh, like it's of the so up close. I Hate yeah, it. it's, it's, yeah. Ugh. Uh, so Matt ends up burning his hand on the doorknob when, or doorknob when he tries to open it. So there's, there's lots of things wrong with the, wrong with this room, but he still insists on staying down in the basement. 
Sounds like something people would do. Dumb people. Yeah, he for someone who's like getting haunted, basically, he keeps going down there. So Yeah. Yeah. The next day, Matt leans on the front porch of the pillar when he gets like it he he went shopping. Uh and it caves in, revealing maggots and meat, and it appears to be just a hallucination because his mom gets his attention and it's not on his hand anymore. Uh ew. <laughs> That's like do you remember back in the day when they'd be like, it's eyeballs, and you were, like, touching something for Halloween, and it was, like, grapes or something? That that part grosses me out, because I don't like things on my hands. Yeah, they use, like, <laughs> peeled grapes. Yeah. Uh, I don't like that. Like, when I worked at Cold Stone, I had to wash my hands after everything I made, because I didn't like them being sticky. Another reason I don't want children. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so he he sees that. He does eventually get into the room, like the glass room, but no one knows how. His brother just ends up finding him in there, uh, and then they explore the room. They're like, what is this? There is lots of mortuary tools and chemicals all around. There's a metal slab in the middle, middle of the table. <laughs> it's clearly a, a old mortuary house. Um, and Matt starts to have visions of bodies being taken out of coffins and the coffins being filled with sandbags. And he also kind of starts to act a little sinister. He's playing with his brother, and his brother's telling him to stop, and he's not. Uh, then he, uh, he he gets another vision while they're at dinner. And they're holding hands to pray, and he has some, like, images of a se- like a seance happening during which the boy from the morgue, uh, like the morgue room, has a black cloud stuff, something... I uh, I don't remember what they call it right off the like right off of my head, uh, but it's coming out of his mouth, and it's like what you see on the cover of the movie. What did they call it? I want I can't remember what they called it all of a sudden. But the parents thinks or think that the hallucinations are just being brought on by his treatment, and so they're kind of just like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> He's just delusional, guys. It's fine. It's fine. He'll be okay. Walk it off. Right, During side. some treat. Oh, quick, sorry. Quick side note. Um, uh-huh. The comic book series is called Something is Killing the Children. Oh. It I seems kind of like potentially they could be similar. Uh, Something is Killing the Children is about a town where children are getting murdered and disappearing. And there's like yeah. some monster person that comes out. Might be similar. Uh, but there, Mike Flanagan is producing and co-writing a tv series for netflix about that comic series okay so maybe that's what i'm thinking of i knew i knew they were adapting it somehow but i don't know if this is it or if it's meant to come out later i guess we'll see (laughs) but way to nail that if that is like on the money i hey if that ends up being true i'm gonna be so proud of myself So, during Matt's treatment at the hospital, he ends up meeting another patient who tells him not to tell the staff about his visions. They're like, he's like, don't do it. Just don't say anything. Uh, turns out the guy is a reverend at the local church. Uh, he's like retired. Figure. But yeah. Um, this is when you get like the heavy handed religious undertones that most haunted horror films have. Yeah. So Reverend 
I think it's Pompescu, right? Sure. Pompescu. Uh, he is played by Elias Cotes. Cotes. He's also in Devil's Knot, Let Me In, Shutter Island. He clearly likes to do uh, thriller, kind of psychological thriller movies. He's got a lot of other stuff. You might recognize some of the other stuff that's on there, but those are the ones. I, mean, I know him from a lot of stuff. Uh, he's... <laughs> He's not. He is fairly well known in horror movies that are have been around. He did The Thin Red Line. He's got. Uh, he was in Shooter, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, he's in like a bunch of. Not, yeah, not the, all of those are horror movies, but he's the killer inside me. Um, Shutter Island was a really good one that he was in. But yeah, he likes scary movies. He's also in A Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So there you go. <laughs> the scariest movie of all. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Time's backwards. Uh, after this, you see a haunting happening to another fam- to the other families. So while he's at the hospital. For example, the little girl is playing in her room when the lights go out and there's a flash of a, of a dead carved body next to her. So it's like standing next to her. Matt learns that the boy in the seance was named Jonah. And he has visions of him trying to escape the morgue owner, but he gets dragged into the glass embalming room where corpses are coming alive, but only Matt can see them. It's very Jane Doe. Um, yeah. 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 Okay. I didn't even think about that when, when like, rewatching this. Oh, God, I love Jane Doe. That well, movie was so good. <laughs> when they started, like, showing the part where they were carving into the body and the eyes, I was like, oh, this is such a body horror. Yeah. Uh, yeah as another night goes by matt sees a burned body like an overcooked marshmallow man who appears to be trying to communicate with him so it's it's somebody who's making an effort or a spirit making an effort after that matt gets extra crazy his mom finds him with all like all their furniture stacked up around him in it's like in mass piles <laughs> it's like poltergeist yeah, uh, and then he had been scratching like at the at the living room walls until he his like hands were like bleeding. So, but also, another trip to the hospital. <laughs> there are so many times during this movie where I'm like, "You just drop the fucking ball, mom!" Because one, you let him live in the basement where they were embalming and doing the viewings and stuff like that, and when he starts acting weird, you don't be like, "Maybe we should move you," right? Two. You didn't investigate this wall at all, um, which annoys me even more later. So I'll be sure to point that out. <laughs> okay. Of course, what what's good without a without a haunt like a house haunting without kids playing at hide and seek and hiding in crawl spaces, running around. There's always a dumb way there. Yeah, there's always something that kids should not be getting into that they're getting into to play hide and seek in a horror movie, and. First off, that when he opens the dungwaiter for the very first time, it's the hardest. It looks like it's a hard thing to open. Those things scare me. And then he leans <laughs> all the way in, and all I could think of was that thing is gonna smash shut. You. At yeah, some you're point, gonna, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna get cut in half there, bro. That that's all that's in my head every time. Yeah, I was like, why would you lean in there like that, you dumbass? Mm-mm, mm-mm. Not with anything like that. So. The younger brother sees something while hiding in the dumbwaiter, 
which is at the same time that little Mary is hiding in the attic and her foot falls through the 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 wood plank. It's like it's rotted out. When Matt comes up and uh, and helps her get her leg out, they end up finding a box and a book covered with maggots that they pull out like it's nothing. They just touch it like it's nothing. First off, you can't even see where their hand is going. Yeah. No. Right? No. They don't even, like, squirm. He's just like, oh, look, and brushes it off. And the kids don't react at all. They're just like, oh, normal Saturday, maggots. My ass crawled underneath one porch once in January because I heard a crying kitten and I knew there were no bugs because it was way too cold that year. So I, the only reason I ever crawled underneath a porch other than that, hell no. You'll never catch me in any kind of space like that. Yep. Won't do it. Mm-mm. I'd be like getting kitchen tongs, trying to grab it. <laughs> yeah, man. MacGyver some shit to pull that out. You don't need to use your hand. Uh, inside the box, though, were more death photos. There was also a tin box that was filled with dried eyelids, uh, possession photos from the seance with Jonah, just all chilling in there. Um, Do you think these death photos are of the people that were, that they were, like, They were trying to, like, contact? Yeah, the seance is for, because, like, why would they separate those ones? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't even think about that. Who knows? <laughs> so, another haunted house classic happens, and the research montage goes into hand, where everybody's yes. like, what is this? The kids find out that the house was a funeral home where the owner was suspected of pra- practicing necromancy and hosting seances. Uh, his assistant was, was the medium, and that allows people to speak to their loved ones from the other side. Uh, you know obviously, this... Uh, this necromancer crazy person was holding this kid hostage at this point. I completely forgot that I took screenshots of the newspapers. I will post pictures of the newspaper clippings uh, to our Insta slash Facebook. They decide to call the reverend who tries to figure out what the deal is with these eyelids. And he says that they close the eyes so they may rest in darkness. But by cutting off, cutting them off, it keeps them open and makes them see. So basically they can't like rest in peace. They're just constantly awake. I think Uh, his idea was that the mortuary owner was trying to make these spirits be like like you said awake so that they could help see things for jonah and like improve his powers okay okay i, I, I think like that heighten was, it. I could, yeah I think or that maybe was or maybe they were those that like people wanted to contact and so they wanted to leave that opportunity open no because they are just miscellaneous I, bodies they stole yeah, you're from right. the cemetery you're right you're right but there, I think he just thinks they're supposed to be like the vision to the other side. So if they can see, then they're they're helping. Uh, this is also where they find out that there was an explosion or something kind of sort of that sort during the seance, and it says Jonah was never seen again. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the activity ha- in the house hits a level 10 and everyone in the house is completely spooked at night and they turn on all the lights and they go to sleep all together in the same bedroom and then 
this is when they decide to throw in some random side plot that has nothing to do with this movie at all, where the yeah. dad is an alcoholic, and they show like tits and bits of him and mom arguing, and then there's a part where he drives up to a bar and then leaves. Um, and like I get that this I'm gonna go on a rampage for a second or on a soapbox. Um, like I get that they are just fleshing out his character, but his drinking literally does not move this plot line at all it does nothing oh no for this movie yeah um it makes sense as the character because he has a history of alcoholism and he's carrying the pressure of his family and his kid is probably gonna die but no need for that in this movie but anyways he shows up drunk as a skunk and i'm sure maybe the demons like feed off of that i don't know because he gets all pissed because the lights are on and he's like, we're poor, why are the lights on? And he runs why around. Why am I paying for all this shit? Pulls out all the light bulbs, smashes them. Which, by the way, I'm sure replacing the light bulbs costs more than his electric bill would have you for bet. that like single night of having some lights on. You bet they did. And then the mom is like, kicks him out and says, drive home drunk. Like, go away. I don't care. Fuck you. <laughs> Not that that's, like, her responsibility to take care of him at that point, but I just thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Well. So, now they're all in the dark, and the TV and radio starts going static, and all the electrical things kind of start freaking out. And so, what do they do? Oh, they call the reverend. Because everybody has to go to the priest first. He gives these little tidbits of the reason... He gives little tidbits of the reasons prisons used to like used iron bars originally were to keep the evil inside, which huh, shout out supernatural learned that from those guys. Yeah, and then uh, he's like wandering around trying to sort out this evil with his little magnets and iron and stuff, and she sees him investigating all the walls and doesn't say, "Hey, some weird activity happened at that wall that's all scratched to high heaven." Check that out. She's just like, oh, okay. Good luck. Yeah. Let me not help you with anything that's been happening. Yeah. Let me not connect any dots. So, he finds Bones trapped in the dumbwaiter incinerator thing that's down in the basement. They assume that this is Jonah, who is the burned and charred body and the remain or, and the main investigator of the hauntings. So, they think it's him, and that's where he disappeared to. So the reverend takes his bones out of the house and everything appears to stop. Everything, it's like peaceful. Matt sees a charred body staring at him through the basement window like he's outside and the, it was inside. Matt was getting carved into and so it's not just imagination, like it's not just the imagination this time. Like it's actually like on his skin. He has these carvings on his skin and his mom freaks out, obviously, uh, thinking that he's hurting himself and she... Drives him to the hospital, and they get him in for observation and healing. And the doctor is like, I don't know what's keeping this kid alive. I have like his blood cells are terrible, and he doesn't even think that uh, Matt is gonna live through the night. Well, oh, that's what it was called, ectoplasm. That's the gross stuff coming out of Jonah's mouth. Ectoplasm. There you go. <laughs> So it turns out that when the ectoplasm from Jonah burned everyone during the seance, the spirits started attacking him, and Jonah got shut in the furnace and burned alive by the spirits. 
he was actually trying to protect and warn the family from the spirits of the bodies that the morgue or the the I'm just going to call him the necromancer. That's what yeah, I like that. That's an awesome <laughs> name too. Necromancer. Uh, I, I've been watching a lot. Of, I've been playing a lot of D&D, watching a lot of D&D, and apparently reading a book about a necromancer. It's all in there. <laughs> Dude, if I could practice necromancy without it being, you know, dark, evil, and twisted. Super dark. <laughs> um, like if there was a light way to practice necromancy. Be like a- That'd be, be cool like a shit. druid. You'd have to be like a druid where you can like grow plants and like bring life to things. So, side note, there is um like an ex I'm gonna call it an expansion pack because I don't know the D D terminology for it. But it's additions to druid classes, and one of them is called like a the the class of spore or something like that. Um, and they have the ability to do necromancy. Because they have, like, this love of fungus and, like, the dead. And they find life in death. It's so cool. That sounds interesting. So Jonah was trying to protect the family and warn them against the spirits from the bodies that the necromancer had carved into and trapped the spirits in. Uh, he Well, they're trapped in the house because of that. And that would enhance jo- Jonah's powers in the seance. Obviously, the spirits weren't happy about this, which explains why they kept haunting and and causing problems. Additionally, the eyelids were cut off to keep them invisible so nobody could see the spirits. So do you think if he did all the body carving, but he didn't take the eyelids off, everyone could see them? That's a good question. Or do you think that's like the final part to make that work? So... With Matt out of the house being at the hospital and Jonah being out of the house with his uh, bones being taken by the reverend, well, the spirits are now on like a murder fest. They're like, we're fucking free. There's nothing holding us back. We're going at this. Um, You know, another horror movie promise. The girl in the shower scene. Okay, you get that one. You don't get any, like, anything, but she... uh. It's like the it's grudge kinda, it, in Psycho. Yeah. Like where it's just like the shoulders up and she's washing her hair. Yeah. And then the uh, the curtain. It's like one of the, it's like, it's a cloth but bathtub. So it has a curtain that goes like all the way around and then drops into the bathtub at the bottom and closes around her to like. Mac gets a vision or infested with the spirits, uh, spirit of Jonah explaining everything. So he breaks out of his psychiatric, Matt breaks out of his psychiatric room and runs home. Picking up an axe on the way, <laughs> little Here's Johnny episode, uh, Matt goes straight for the wall and reveals all of the bodies that have been buried inside the wall. So Matt ends up throwing Wendy and his brother and his little his other little cousin. He throws them out and then immediately starts like setting room to the fire, breaking everything down, throwing it in the fire, and just building this thing up real quick. <laughs> setting room to the fire. Setting room. Oh, is that what I said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but he tells them like whatever you do don't let them put out the fire and then he just burns the whole room and like bodies are falling from the ceiling yeah apparently they build this house in bodies it's pretty gnarly I can only imagine how bad that would smell yeah um so Sarah so Sarah shows up and runs inside to get Matt who is passed out after Jonah moves on because he finally can move on with all the spirits going away they get pulled up through the wall by the 
um, by the firemen. So it ends with Matt being perfectly fine. The reverend, who turned around once he figured out the bones were good and not bad, uh, he ends up just kind of wandering off. <laughs> yeah, it's really random. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it ends with Matt saying that, or it ends saying that Matt Campbell, Campbell made a full recovery and uh, was not cancer-ridden anymore. It does say that the was it the Ackman? I think it was the Ackman house. The Ackman house was rebuilt and sold, but there is no, there hasn't been any haunting since. So that's like titled at the end, like you know, at the end of true movies where they put like, oh, this is what happened to the real people. But there's no such thing as Ackman house. It, the house was never lit on fire. <laughs> Didn't have to get rebuilt. Uh, so that was like a weird thing for them to put on there and be like, oh, this was a true story. Look at what happened. Um, the character that Matt Campbell is based off of in real life did go into remission uh, and lived years after. But yeah, I just thought yeah. that was like really weird for them to put on there. Because who the fuck is the Ackmans? They never once are like, hey, this is the Ackman house. It was yeah, just it was never brought up. Yeah, it was just really random. So at the end of every movie, we always talk about the graveyard, right? This graveyard well, got dug up and shoved into a house. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. So the entire cemetery and everyone who went through the morgue, they're, 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 they, all, they all died. <laughs> they're all dead. <laughs> all the people who are already uh, dead died. Yeah, so they're all apart there. Can't give you all the names, details, or anybody or count. Um, Jonah was burned in the incinerator. I can tell you that one for sure. Um... And those in the seance that burned by the explosive ectoplasm, they're 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 dead too. That's it. That's it. And then everybody lived a happy jolly life after the haunting ended. Just uh, kidding. I don't know. <laughs> apparently, that's what they want you to think, right? That's what they always want you to think. And so, like we mentioned at the beginning, this is based off a true investigation done by Ed and Lorraine Warren, and this was during the eighties. Which, if you remember, the third movie of The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, is also based in the 80s. And at the time, they were, like, really focusing on, like, satanic panic stuff. So I'm kind of wondering if that's why this one got kind of, I don't know, was less big, maybe? There's not as much stuff to find. Uh, but additionally, they did end up investigating this house in Connecticut. And uh, just, you know, strap in. There's not a lot of information for this investigation. Like, there is all those other ones that we covered. Mm -hmm. It was mostly, like, one article. And then all the other articles just repeating what that article said. So, it was really hard to find stuff. Um, and then, again, it was really hard finding anything for behind the scenes for this movie. Because everything was about the true haunting. Not necessarily the movie it wasn't also right. like a well-received movie i think it didn't get as big as they thought so it's yeah. not like people really jumped into it Woo. uh some of the references that i am going to use in the, or that i used for this research uh nbc connect there was an interview with lorraine warren done march 4th 2009 23 days before the movie was released i think she got to see it as like a pre-release by the way um and then hmm went and did like a movie junket for it livescience.com the real story being 
Behind the Haunting in Connecticut by Benjamin Radford, written also March 2009. And there was a documentary released in 2002 on TV called Haunting in Connecticut. Uh, it was done by the Discovery Channel. And there's another documentary that I was able to find on YouTube called The Fear is Real, Reinvestigating the Haunting in Connecticut. So the family that this story is based on is actually the Snedeker family, which consisted of Alan, Mom Carmen, their three sons, Philip, who was the oldest. Uh, he was 13 at the time. This In this movie, he looks like he's like 16, 17. Uh, but in real life, he was 13 years old, which kind of makes what happens like even creepier moving forward. Yeah. Kenneth. Yeah, for real who is supposed to be the one who got spun on the gurney, which did happen in real life. Or the, I'm sorry, not the gurney, the metal slab. Um, yeah, the morgue, the morgue. That was pulled from real life, he says. Uh, he was 11 at the time. And Alan Jr. was age three. Probably a good reason they left him out. I'm sure not a lot happened to him. Yeah. Uh, they also had a daughter named Jennifer, who was age six. Also, probably too young to really have anything to do with it. And they did have two nieces. Tammy, who was 17 at the time. And I didn't find the name of the second one or her age. But she was younger. She doesn't come up a lot. Uh, but I, they did say that Tammy and the niece moved in with them because their parents were going through like a nasty divorce. And their oldest son, Philip, keep in mind, age 13, was getting treated for Hodgkin's disease which is a specific type of cancer to the immune system which can make it pretty dangerous and really hard to treat however because science rocks treatments are pretty good these days and according to a 2011 research article 85 percent of patients with hodgkin lymphoma become long-term survivors which is awesome the treatment that appeared to be happening in the film uh, wasn't actually a trial at that time <laughs> Um, but he was getting chemo and radiation. That's why he was getting like his skin was all red and blistering and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And from what I could find on the Google box, uh, the radiation was actually phased out by the eighties because chemo combinations became more efficient and safer. That's the only thing with like what they showed in the film and what was happening there that I couldn't figure out being true or not. That's not really an important part of the story. But anyways, uh, the oncologist at the time told Carmen there was no chance of him having hallucinations or delusions with the medications he was on. So that's another thing they added to the movie that wasn't true in real life. Okay. The family moved into 208 Meriden Avenue, Southington, Connecticut on June 30th, 1986. Uh, saying it here, if you choose to drive by this house... Don't go on the property. There are people who have owned it for a very long time. And when this movie came out, they were really upset with how much traffic their house got. Um, but according to Zillow, it's a five bed, two bath. That's a lot of people sharing one bathroom. 3,000 yeah. plus square feet. It was built in 1916. So it's definitely got a history. Plus, we all know Connecticut's full of shit. Uh, it says on Zillow that it was last sold in 1998. For 140000 and now it's estimated to be worth like $300,000, give or take. So that's kind of cool. I also think the family that might have 
bought it in 1998, bought it from the Semiticers. So, if it's interesting, if that's updated. Per Lorraine, the family did not know that the house was used to be a funeral home. That's what they said. According to the upstairs neighbor, because it was kind of like a duplex is what they labeled it as. And so the family lived on the bottom floor and they had an old lady that lived above them. This woman said she did not hear or experience any of the haunting phenomena the family claims to have gone through. Just putting that out there. Neither here nor there am I with my beliefs, but that is what was said. Uh, Carmen said that she had not been in the basement before they bought it because of renovation materials that were blocking the stairway and only found the embalming equipment after they moved in. The former owner and their in-house neighbor claimed the family was fully informed prior to them renting the house. So there's also that. Carmen did find mortician tools in the basement, just like they did in the movie. She says there were a couple of photos, but there were a lot of toe tags and a head tag, which is interesting. Hmm. I wonder if she found a, like a box of bells. That would be funny. Like those little toe bells. Oh, God. <laughs> That's what I would do. If I knew I lived in a funeral home, I would hide bells all over the place and like tie strings to them up to my room and like jingle them throughout the night. Oh, oh you're terrible. <laughs> that would be so funny. <laughs> Until they started jingling and I wasn't the one doing it, then I would be haunted. Yeah, too. then you'd be scared. Yeah, I'd be fucked. Really, there's just like termites and rats in the walls, but that's okay. Uh, she did say there was a bunch of other personal items of the deceased that had been left behind. I think, I assume she probably just tossed them or boxed them up and moved them because they're renting. I don't know. The three boys shared a room, which used to be the viewing room down the hall from the mortician room. So that basement room is basically on the same floor. Uh, three boys stayed in that room together. They were the first to start seeing things, and they noted odd things such as the sound of chains pulling coffins in that dumbwaiter. So the dumbwaiter thing, it's not like the laundry small thing. It's actually like a big, long uh, elevator kind of a deal. Uh, They would put the caskets from the viewing room with the body into there, and then it would raise it up so that they could take take it out. Yeah, okay. Which is also why it was near the incinerator. Because when I was watching the movie, I was like, why the hell did you put a dumbwaiter right next to an incinerator? (laughs) But that's why. Uh, Because they could lower the boxes down and then just shove them over. These kids eventually began sleeping in the living room because they got really spooked in that room. The LiveScience.com article says that the eldest son, Philip, began seeing ghosts and having visions. The specifics of those are not detailed in the places that I could find. Uh, But the other family members started also having experiences. Both parents said they were sexually assaulted by demons. One day, as Carmen mopped the kitchen floor, the water suddenly turned blood red and smelled of decaying flesh. Uh, So just like a bunch of stuff like that, the smell of death and like ickiness all over the house, cold bursts. Carmen described the demons in an interview that she had She said one of the demons was very thin, with high cheekbones, long black hair, and pitch black eyes. 
Another had white hair and eyes, wore a pinstripe tuxedo, and his feet were constantly in motion. So we have a creepy thin man and a man in a pinstripe tattoo that likes to tap dance. Those are the demons, just so you know. Carmen. I mean, in Insidious, <laughs> there was a lipstick demon, so... There you go. We're at it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Carmen's accounts were covered in episodes of the television series A Haunting and Paranormal Witness. This was featured on that series as like a mini, uh, which is where she gives a bunch of these interviews. The shower curtain incident did happen, uh, but it happened to Carmen and not Wendy. But in the movie, Wendy's the hot one, so that's why they gotta make it happen to her. And in... An interview with the mom, Carmen said the shower curtain wrapped around her face so she couldn't breathe, and Wendy was the one who came in and rescued her. She said, I could have fallen um, as I was being pressed in upon. Or she said, I couldn't have fallen because it was like it was pressing on her. And that was an interview with ChasingTheFrog.com. The real-life Philip Snedeker did attack his cousin, Tammy, and an ambulance took him to a mental hospital where he was evaluated and remained for 45 days. So that's kind of analogous to that scene where he's getting carved on. That's supposed to be like how he got out of the house. But also they kept him for 45 days. So that's, you know, mm-hmm. clearly there was something happening there. And I think I read somewhere that he was attempting to sexually assault her. I don't know if that's true or not, but that did pop up in a few places. Uh, Alan's sister, Nancy Boucher, I think, has also spoken out in interviews about the hauntings. She lived with the family for a few months prior to the Warrens arriving. And at some point, she said that she did like experience, not necessarily demons and things, but she... I think she said she could like smell the rotting fish and like odd things were happening. Uh, so she also has come out and spoken about it in defense of the family. And enter Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, Lorraine says they were woken up by a phone call from Carmen and Wendy. The That night, the youngest niece had experienced the covers on her bed levitating around her. The Warrens went to their house the next day and brought with them the family priest. They did interviews, and the priest blessed the house, but apparently it was so evil that it didn't matter. And Lorraine said in an interview that in the master bedroom, there was a trap door where their coffins were brought up, and during the night, you would hear the chains hoist as if a coffin were being brought up. But when Ed went to check, he found two women down there dancing around in circles and singing. When he walked towards them, they disappeared. Hmm. The Warrens ended up creating a team to do like more paranormal investigation and it was headed by their nephew John Zaffis who helps kind of take over their investigation job Uh, because if you remember in the third movie of The Conjuring Ed had a heart attack Uh, they Mm -hmm. were getting a bit older so that's why I think they started bringing in John to help run things to give him a break Mm, okay and Zaffis says he spent nine and a half weeks living in the house in the summer of 1988. He had to take a three-day break because he saw an, quote, entity descending a staircase. He asked if the figure was human. Zaffis says he could only describe it as transparent, 
murky, dot, 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 the stupid thing stunk like hell. Sorry, the article was titled The Unreal Haunting, and it was in the Hartford Current newspaper. Uh, they contacted the local bishop's office in Hartford, who sent two high priests to the house. One of them had actually been used as an exorcist before. They went to the house, held a mass, and during the mass, Ed, who, as I said, had recently suffered a heart attack, started having severe heart palpitations, which they attributed to the evil in the house, so they stopped it promptly. They report that they got permission to do an exorcism, and they ended up requesting another priest to perform it because those two that had arrived were like, the shit's too evil, I don't want to mess with it. So they brought in someone more experienced, and this exorcism was supposedly performed September 6th, 1988. Hmm. Lorraine said, quote, When the exorcism happened, a crazy thing also happened that we still don't really understand. There was a huge tree in front of the house, and half of the tree, with no wind, broke off and fell on the property. A representative of the Hartford Archdiocese told the Hartford Current in 1992, when that article was written, that no authorized exorcism occurred at the house. Keep that in mind. Hmm. So the family and the Warrens are saying, listen, we got, we went through the channels, it got approved, we got an exorcist. The channels they supposedly went through are saying, no, that didn't happen. So, who knows? Daryl Kern, the former owner of the Sallington home, confirmed that prior to purchasing the property in the 1980s, it had served as the Hallin Funeral Home for multiple decades. The investigation into the history of the house, according to the Warrens, this is, by the way, I don't think anyone has been able to find whatever research they, they found since this came out. Just prefacing. Uh, they found that the morticians that worked there were allegedly involved in necrophilia and necromancy. And that was also reported in that 1992 Hartford Current one. Like I said, no one has been able to corroborate those claims. But that's what they are saying happened in that house. So while I was trying to find stuff about the Hallahan Funeral Home and any potential uh, necrophilia, necromancy claims, um, which I didn't, by the way, but I did find an article where a woman is suing a funeral home in 2013, and this is what the article said. It said that she received an email. Sorry. Okay. It says that she received an email from an AOL account used by the undertaker of the funeral home where her mother was being serviced and supposed to be buried and Hmm. she got this email two days before the funeral and this email said quote we would like to thank you for allowing our directors to fuck the hell out of your loved one Uh, and it goes on to say there is nothing like a dead piece of ass and i cannot imagine getting that email one but two This poor funeral home. Um, Because you know that was... I don't know this. I'm sorry. I hope that was a joke email, which is what the undertaker, the directors and everything say. They say they got hacked. They hadn't even been using that AOL account. It it just was fucked up. Um, But, like, who in their right mind 
does that? Like, who hacks a funeral home email and says something like that to people? It's so gross. But anyways, moving on. I just figured, since we've already talked about gerbling, I might as well bring that up. (laughs) There are no limits. (laughs) The investigator Joe Nickel reports in the May-June issue of Skeptical Inquirer magazine that the Snedeker landlady found the whole story ridiculous. She noted that nobody before or since had experienced anything unusual in the house, and that the Snedeker family stayed in the house for more than two years before finally leaving. Which, as we've kind of said before, you can't judge a family because they stay. Um, Sometimes they just don't have options. So, I don't really think that's a yay or nay. Oops. Decider. I'm just throwing stuff now. Atlas Obscuria article said that, quote, other facts emerged, including the troubled nature of the oldest son. So, during that 45-day hold at the psychiatric facility that he was at, uh, they found that he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. He was abusing drugs, I guess. Um, But also he's being treated for an awful disease. So, and chemo's not fun. So again, I don't want to judge anybody on that. And it could just be that he was taking what he was supposed to and they just didn't pay attention. But anyways... Uh, He does eventually admit to having caused some of the apparent haunting activity. So some of what happened, he says, yes, I made that shit happen. That didn't real. That that wasn't real. But he also says some of it was. So who knows? Horror novelist Ray Garten, who we said wrote the book, was hired by Ed and Lorraine Warren to work with the Snedekers and write the, quote, true story of their house. He interviewed all the family members about their experiences and realized that there was a little bit of a problem. Uh, In an interview with Horrorbound magazine, he said, I found that the accounts of the individual Snedekers didn't quite mesh. They couldn't keep their story straight. I went to Ed with this problem and he said, oh, they're crazy. You've got some of the story. Just use what works and make the rest up. Just make it up and make it scary. Lorraine has come back and said, that's bullshit. Ed would never say anything like that. So again, he said, she said. Yeah. yeah. Ray Garten's book, In a Dark Place, The Story of True Haunting, came out in 1992. Uh, the message board thread on Deja News. Apparently, there's a spot where Garten posted, and he had said the following things about the Warrens. I... Can't verify whether this was really Garten. Can't find the actual message board. This is from an old article that, like, snipped it in there. Um, so, yeah. Take it with a grain of salt. I spent, he said, sorry. I spent several days with the Warrens during this time. I spent time with them in their home and ate with them and went on long drives with them. Of the two, Lorraine is the sanest. She's an enabler. Years ago, before their career in the, quote, supernatural began, Ed suffered from mental illness. It was bad enough to keep him from working, and the only way he could make money was to hand-paint house, hand paint haunted houses on dinner plates and sell them door-to-door. We know he was painting haunted houses. I can't corroborate the rest of that, just so everyone knows. Once Ed decided that Lorraine was psychic... Selling the haunted house plates eventually led to investigating haunted houses. At first, they, they found, quote, ghosts. 
but after the tremendous success of the exorcist both the novel and the movie ghosts suddenly became demons if you go back and trace the career you can see the sudden change almost overnight all ghosts were really demons trying to possess residents and sooner or later the demons were bad it says a lot of other stuff i'm gonna stop it there it's a lot <laughs> but it also goes on to say that from the time i spent with the warrens i learned from ed that their job is not really to investigate so much as it is to take the stories told by these families most of whom are dealing with problems like alcoholism drug addiction mental illness and or domestic abuse problems that are buried by their supernatural fantasies which are supported and made tangible by the very eager warrens and they arrange them into a sellable package that will make a good book and hopefully a movie well tell me how you really feel <laughs> really right <laughs> this guy went off i'm sure some of that could be shown. Like maybe their early cases were all ghosts and then all the same demons started showing up that I could see. To play devil's advocate, you could also say that those people who are experiencing, quote, real problems, like he says, the alcoholism, drug addiction, mental illness, just makes them more susceptible to be haunted. So you could argue that as well. Um, again, he said, she said, opinions, subjective. But that's the haunting. That's basically it. They saw some shit. That's all I could find. Um, the Warrens did, I guess, do like a huge, not marketing campaign, uh, publicity thing. Like they pushed it really hard because uh, they were well known by then. But I couldn't find any of that stuff. I can find the articles. None of that. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying my Google box didn't show me. But if you have those, or if you find those, or if you are way better at it than I am, please tell me. That'd be cool. But where are they now? Basically, all of the Snedekers live in Tennessee, um, or some variant of a state near Tennessee, Tennessee adjacent. Carmen, uh, she goes by Carmen Reed. She is by far the most outspoken of the family. She did a shit ton of interviews. At some point, she had a website, which no longer exists. I... The link wasn't valuable. She used to have a website that from this person seemed kind of weird and sketchy and it was odd. She remarried to someone named William McCone, who had two sons. And Alan Snedeker Sr. Um, all I did was Google his name and his whole Facebook profile popped up. Just saying. <laughs> uh, but he is also listed on imdb as a creative consultant for the film oh. I, I don't know if that's true he has not done interviews like carmen has people and stuff say oh we reached out but we didn't hear back so so who knows uh his facebook profile shows that he is single and he loves being a grandpa and he likes to hunt that's i did not dig i swear to god that's all that popped up <laughs> I didn't face all I could see. I didn't Facebook stock. All I did was check the family members to make sure they mm -hmm. were listed on there to see if this was the real one. <laughs> so, that was the extent of sure. my career. <laughs> That's what she says. What she wants you to think. I Just like these movies want us to think these things. That's what she wants you to think. <laughs> I saved that level <laughs> of Facebook stocking for special people. Okay. I get it. I understand that. <laughs> Um, the oldest son, Philip, he, so he did survive for a while. 
Um, he died August 9th, 2012 of cancer that came back. He worked as a trucker. He had four sons. He's currently buried in the Wilson Cemetery in Elizabethton, Tennessee, which is where a lot of the family lives. Um, his obituary, you can find also, uh, listed his biological father as Philip Rhodes. I just thought that was kind of an interesting tidbit that has nothing to do with anything. The rest of their family are alive and well. As far as I can tell, everyone grew up. Everyone had a bunch of kids. They're all happy. But yeah, I'm going to close this out real quick with the poem that he references in the movie. So he keeps referencing a poem. The only parts he references really are like two dead boys get up to fight. And I've read this in a book before and I've always been intrigued by it because it is a wild ass poem, but it's so beautifully morbid like that section. So the origin of this poem, it's not really a specific print. It's more of a combination of oral traditions that people have collected. So they think mm -hmm. the earliest version of this is in The Mummer's Play by R.J.E. Titty, <laughs> uh, published in 1923. And then the more like recent common one that people reference has been found in The Lore and Language of School Children by Iona and Peter Opie. It was published in 1959. And... They say that they collected it, um, collected all these verses from like 12 different schools in the UK and then added it and compared it to this version in the Mummer's Play. And so that's why I say it's just like a collection of oral tradition, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's called One Fine Day in the Middle of the Night. And I'm going to read it real fast and then we'll be done. So, ladies and gentlemen, skinny and scout, I'll tell you a tale I know nothing about. The admission is free, so pay at the door. Now pull out a chair and sit on the floor. On one bright day, in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords, and shot each other. The blind man came to see fair play. The mute man came to shout, hooray! The deaf policeman heard the noise and came to stop those two dead boys. He lived on the corner in the middle of the block in a two-story house on a vacant lot. A man with no legs came walking. My dogs are going crazy. He lived on the corner in the middle of the block in a two-story house on a vacant lot. A man with no legs came walking by and kicked the lawman in his thigh. He crashed through a wall without making a sound into a dry creek bed and suddenly drowned. A long black hearse came to cart him away, but he ran for his life and is still gone today. I watched from the corner of the table, the only eyewitness to facts of my fable. If you doubt my lies are true, just ask the blind man. He saw it too. So it's a lot of like contradicting statements and it's so beautifully written. I love it. I know it's a great poem. We, uh, I had a middle school teacher that would take attendance by giving each of our students a single line from a, a long poem. And you would say that poem every day in class. And then whatever piece is missing is the student that's missing. This is a poem that we actually did. That is fucking awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. She was one of my favorite teachers at, uh, at Butler. Um, she was really young too, but we did like the Jabberwocky too. And so I know that whole entire uh, poem, too. That's awesome. That's genius. Yeah. To, like, get it was kids... the best. It was the coolest, coolest class. So. To get kids, like, interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's The Haunting in Connecticut 1. 
I feel like I failed go. on research, so I apologize. But I tried There's really hard. There's not a lot. <laughs> there wasn't a lot. It wasn't on you. I think you're good. But I promise if we find more stuff, I will add it into like the Haunting in Connecticut 2 episode. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So to close this out, I did want to throw in here our listener, Mickey underscore Rose 86 from Instagram, who was also our annual winner last year. Yeah. He sent us a chat. Uh, giving his personal review of Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Because apparently, um, he was like, I did not know there was more than two. So he went to watch them. Because he was also the one who recommended that movie. Yeah, well, there you go. You found you found something new. Um, his review was, it was awful. It had some hilarious bits. And it also had Bill Mosley. He gave it a 1.5 out of 5 stars. Sounds about right. Uh, if you yourself have ratings for movies we've done or haven't done or cat things or recommendations for future movies or you just want to tell me to stop recording while my dogs are fighting uh play fighting you can instagram us at or underscore cats underscore witch hats our facebook is the same thing you can also send us a gmail email at for cats witch hats at gmail.com all one word and i don't know if we've discussed what we're doing for our next movie are we doing the second one for our next movie i i don't know do we want to do the second one do we want to do something new let's do something different and then we'll do the second one after that okay sounds good i like that idea all right we will surprise you with our next episode because <laughs> we're gonna surprise ourselves yeah. <laughs> okay <laughs> uh if you have a request send it in we'll do it yeah let us know We'll try and figure it out. And it will come out in two weeks-ish because that's what we do. And We're so good on timing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Lives are busy. But I yeah. broke my phone. It's been a hassle. <laughs> Basically, um, if you can become a necromancer, but without burying bodies in your walls and haunting people and damning the dead, uh, do it. Yeah, I guess. I feel like that's just a, like, a healer. It's just like the opposite of necromancy. It's like a healer. <laughs> All right. Well, now we got to figure out what the fuck we're going to do. But in meantime, meow. Meow.